Recently released Q3 numbers show that investment volumes are still dropping across all property types. But with inflation leveling out, CBRE recently predicted the Federal Reserve may begin cutting interest rates as soon as March of 24, which could drive investment activity recovery by mid-24. Go to junipersquare.com forward slash state of real estate, all one word, to learn more about these and other CRE market trends, including why the U.S. market still strongly appeals to international investors and the boom in private credit. Again, that's junipersquare.com forward slash state of real estate, all one word, to learn more. I'm Brandon Sedloff, Managing Director at Juniper Square, and you're listening to The Distribution by Juniper Square. Join us as we sit down with experts from commercial real estate, venture capital, and private equity to discuss trends in technology, fundraising, and private markets. We'll cover this and much more. On today's episode of The Distribution, I sit down with Jeff Taparik, co-founder and managing principal of FD Stonewater, a boutique development, investment, brokerage, and asset management firm. As a leader in the firm's investment and asset management platforms, Jeff focuses his entrepreneurial energies on creating value from every angle of a transaction, including property operations, leasing, portfolio and risk management, and capital markets execution. During our conversation, we discuss how FD approaches single-tenant assets and how they're using technology to drive greater efficiency and his search for the holy grail of dashboards. Let's get into it. Jeff, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brandon. Let's dive right into it. We have a lot to cover. I like to start by asking all my guests to introduce themselves and to introduce your firm. So tell us a little bit more about you. Sure. So my name is Jeff Toporek. I'm a co-founder and principal at FD Stonewater. And the firm started about 20 years ago. We're based and headquartered in Washington, D.C. We have a large presence in Southern California. We have about 43 professionals, privately held company, about 10 partners. Awesome. So you and I have had the opportunity to get to know each other over the last several years. And I think your background is really interesting. Can you, before we dive into the FD Stonewater story and what it is that you do, can you walk us through kind of how you got into the commercial real estate business and what your career journey has been like so far? Sure. So I obviously graduated from the greatest university on the planet, University of Michigan. Go Blue. Um, and <laughs> that was in 1994. And that was coming out of the you know recession of the early 90s. I got a job at JP Morgan and went through their management training program, which was a fantastic way to start my career. And I got exposed to a lot of different parts of the bank and ultimately landed in the CMBS group. And it was the it was JP Morgan's first securitization post RTC. So got a ton of exposure there. And then, you know, big bank, they sort of went through a big round of layoffs and they moved me to cover insurance and write research. And I very quickly realized how much I loved real estate, ultimately, you know, left relatively quickly after that. And I ended up getting a job at Eastill, which is a real estate investment bank. And at the time, Eastill was about 20 people. And I was one of three analysts. And it was a really exciting time for them to grow. And I stayed there for about eight years, rose through the ranks to be a VP and managing director. And then at 30 years old, 
had a business plan with my partner David Stade to you know kind of buy single tenant shorter term leases, which really felt like a great arbitrage in the market. And then we left in 2003 to start FD Stonewater. Awesome. So when you started FD Stonewater, what was your business thesis? Was it as simple as single tenant, shorter term leases? And if so, kind of what drove you to have conviction? And I'm a, I imagine at this time, there probably wasn't a tremendous amount of competition for such a specialist type of strategy. Yeah. And, and it just goes back to the fabric of how we started, which is everything kind of has to be a niche strategy. Everything has to be a business plan that you can you know kind of show empirical evidence, but also kind of have a gut check on what you think is going on. So at the time in the single tenant world, most investors were buying longer term leases. They were just considered to be you know bond-like, cash flow, coupon clipper, buy it, hold it, and, and the like. There was very, very little activity on anything that was less than 10 years, even in some cases less than 12. So we were able to look at the real estate perspective, which really was my skill set, and then really identify the, the credit piece of it, which was really Dave Stade's skill set. And by combining those two and applying, you know, our real estate acumen to kind of a passive investment class. That's really been the premise of the business plan is, you know, you're, you're getting paid on a risk reward basis to identify those opportunities. And then the arbitrage is if you take a short term lease and convert it to a longer term lease, you know, have opportunities to increase NOI expansions, things like that. That's really been the fabric of, of kind of what we've done for 20 years in that, in that business plan. So. Let's back up. You started FD Stonewater. What year did this kick off? I'm not uh, smart enough to do the math here to figure yeah, out. What so you... this was this was 2003, yeah. and we we started with a joint venture with Fortress. They had a special opportunities fund, and what appealed to them was that it looked like a bond because you had the regular cash flow, you had the downside protection of of the real estate asset but you weren't capped on your upside through equity value. And they really believed in our ability to create that value at the asset level, you know, which really kind of proved out to be the case. So I presume though that, you know, you didn't write your business plan and wave your magic wand and all of a sudden Fortress appears. You kind of glossed over that, like, you know, of course you have a JV with Fortress. Everyone does, but I think that's not the case. So how did you come to get to know them? And what did that kind of initial relationship look like? And then specifically, how did that inform the future direction, you know, or the initial direction of the business of FD Stonewater? You know, it's really interesting. They were, it was, a, it was a much different firm back then. They had $4 billion under management, not $45 billion under management. They were a, a very small firm at the time. We were introduced to someone through someone that was a, a mutual friend of the firm. And, you know, we had a couple of conversations. They understood the plan. There was a really good rapport. Everyone understood kind of what the objective was. And really, it didn't take more than 30 days. It was a lot of meetings, a lot of, you know, dissecting. But, you know, they they came along pretty quickly and kind of believed in the plan. It's not something they had seen before. It's not something they thought they could do without our expertise. And, you know, we we're kind of off and running. I mean, we were, 
we were already bidding on deals within 30 days. It, it was a different time than it would be, you know, back then. I mean, it's a 20 year difference. Yeah, that's incredible. So Fortress gives you some initial capital in a JV structure. And what was your mandate? What were you supposed to do with that capital and with that partnership? Yeah, so that mandate was really to assemble a, it was almost an annual portfolio. We would never really do that today, but that's how kind of they were structured. And to go out and buy short to medium term single tenant assets that we felt like had a good mission critical story, good renewal story, and hold those assets and create the value. We thought we would do that for the next 20 years. You know, it was a great setup. The market was was right for that. And then all of a sudden you had this wave of non-traded REITs that were buying the long-term assets. And then all of a sudden they had raised so much capital that they were having trouble finding deals that kind of fit their criteria. So what happened was they ended up taking on more risk, dipping into the shorter term deals for really the same returns that they were buying on the long term side. And so that very quickly kind of put us in a position where like, okay, this seems like a premium to the market, we actually started selling some of those assets. So something that we thought was gonna sort of be around for 20 years, in two years, the market had changed and was drastically different. So we had a you know pivot pretty quickly. We came up with another business plan and started doing kind of multi-tenant value add deals right after that. We did another venture with Fortress. So Fortress is chapter one. Talk to us a little bit about kind of how the capitalization of the business has evolved since then in terms of the types of investors, the types of deals that you structure, and then also help us frame up the size and scale of FD Stonewater today, knowing that it's been, you know, 15, well, 20, 20 years now since you, uh, since you kicked it off. Yeah, I'll try and give you the abridged version and, and link it together for you. So we, after we did our two ventures with Fortress, um, there are a couple of guys from Fortress that left to go to Garrison and start Garrison. We did another single tenant venture with them that was also pretty successful. And then one of the first deals that we did actually with Fortress was a government deal. And that's how we met some of our current partners at FD. So Richard Mann, Joe DeLogue, David Alperstein, they helped advise us on the acquisition. They helped renew the tenant, helped really drive value and ultimately helped in the, in the disposition. So we were in the trenches with them you know, for three years solid. And, you know, ultimately we sold that deal between, it was like September of 2008. So, you know, right as the market was really, really fragile. But that was a relationship that, you know, when you're working with someone for three years, you create a pretty deep relationship. In 2010, they were leaving Spalding and Sly, which was purchased by JLL and had been approached by the DuPont Pension Fund to buy government assets as well as develop. And so they called us and said, hey, we have the development expertise. We don't really have the acquisitions and and investment asset management expertise. Would you consider doing that with us? And you know, there was a very, very high trust level. We had known each other for a long time. Uh, we kind of got in a room and started to say, okay, let's just let's just look at what do you guys do? What do we do? 
And does one plus one equal two or does one plus one potentially equal five? And ultimately, we sort of wrote out a, a presentation that one plus one was easily five. And so rather than just doing that venture together, we actually decided to merge companies. So today, what that company looks like is there are really three different verticals. So we have a federal consulting group that is based in Washington, D.C., but covers the country nationally and represents owners to either renew or attract the federal government as a tenant. We have a development group that does built to suits for federal and state governments around the country. So you can see how those two groups kind of work together. We also do student housing development in a joint venture with the price companies. And we also have a logistics business now that we do speculative development in the Southeast, very kind of specific niche business plan. And then we have our investment and asset management group where we continue to do the, you know, our fastball strategy, which is single tenant. We also own some multi-tenant assets as well. And we have a government adjacent private sector program. So everything we do within each vertical, there is a very niche strategy, very business plan focused. And really what drives who we are as a company is how do we use our experience and intellectual capital to differentiate ourselves in creating that business strategy? And how are we uniquely situated to execute on that? And you know, look, real estate's not rocket science, but if you work hard and you can actually find a niche strategy and use your experience, you can clearly differentiate yourself. So this might be the obvious question. How do you do that? What is your unique advantage uh, that enables you to differentiate yourself in addition to the fact that you're hyper-focused on, a, you know, on specific niche strategies? So I think the biggest thing for us is we look at every individual deal, whether it's a development or an acquisition, as a business plan for that specific deal. And as we're acquiring it or developing it, we're, we're clearly identifying what we would like to accomplish with that business plan. And we really attack it from every level. So we're creating relationships. And, and that's probably the biggest driver. We're not a money mover. We don't need to move $5 billion, right? We're very focused on the asset level. So by creating relationships for you know what is going on at the asset, and then how do we solve problems for them that come up with a real estate execution and a financial capital market solution to that? And, and that's a pretty, you know, we I just toured a building yesterday. We're we're we haven't even bid on it. And I'm already devising the business plan, just hearing very, very little things. Like they don't have a gym in the building. They're having a really tough time with corporate justifying a gym in the building. They have the space for it. It's not really a lot of money. And if a real estate owner can come in and say, hey, well, we'll fund that and we get the whole laundry list. And you know, we'll work with corporate to solve that issue for them. And so you create a lot of goodwill from the ground up all the way through corporate where you're helping them solve problems that generally they're not in the real estate business. They're focused on making cars or making windows and they should focus on that part of their business. So when you apply active management to helping solve their issues at a facility that helps them retain their employees, help them make more, make them more productive, 
even though we could have a long-term lease on the asset, we're trying to drive value literally day one. Yeah, that's fascinating. I've got a lot more questions that I want to ask you about the strategy. But before we do, staying zoomed out. So the three verticals, federal consulting group, kind of build to suit development across you know, industrial student housing and niche uh, logistics in the Southeast, and then your investment in asset management group. Collectively, what are we talking from a AUM or EUM perspective? And then how do you capitalize the different initiatives that you have within your investment and asset management group? Sure. So uh, history of the firm is we've done about 1.6 billion of acquisitions, development and asset management, about 83 buildings, 13 and a half million feet over the history of the firm. Today, we're at about 600 million in assets under management, about 2.8 million square feet. And I'm not including things that we kind of know are in the pipeline of development that are yet to be delivered or assets that we're that we know that we're going to acquire. The history of how we've capitalized deals has really been, you know, we talked about, you know, the joint ventures, talked about the fund with with DuPont. But really for the last eight years, and it really came about with technology. Our meeting at a ULI conference in Seattle, you know, I don't know, eight years ago where we kind of realized, hey, well, Juniper Square can give us a platform where we're agnostic to how many investors we have. And all of a sudden, we kind of realized, hey, wait a minute, we have this network of, of private capital investors, people that we know, and we think we can probably raise capital on an individual deal basis. So we did that on the investment asset management side for, for eight years. And we never had an issue raising capital. People loved the platform, the ability to sign documents electronically. It really was a game changer for us where we were able to really use technology to do something we had been hoping to do for a long time. And we never you know, outwardly marketed. There was no, no need to do that. It was all people that we know. During COVID, we kind of took a step back and said, what are we great at? And we looked at the returns from our multi-tenant business strategy. And we looked at our single tenant. And our single tenant strategy kind of blew everything away. Those returns were over 35% over 20 years. And we just sort of said, let's just narrow the focus and let's figure out a structure that we think is better than the one-off structure. And we really looked at everything from public REIT to non-traded REIT to you know continuing with one-off. We ultimately, for that strategy, ended up deciding to do an open-ended structure, which is an evergreen fund. And so we launched that in November. And really what that allows us to do is our investors get 1K1 now. We were never able to do a 1031 exchange with investors in individual deals. We were never able to get you know, portfolio-level acquisition financing. So all these tools and levers especially as margins have compressed in the capital markets, just become that much more important. And the ability to execute becomes more important. We could think about portfolio construction today. And then as the firm has evolved, we've been able to look at things like, okay, you know, we developed some deals. Should we continue to own a select number of those and keep those in the fund? You know, which gives us a stable base of income. You know, we could sell those down the road. 
but it allows us to take certain risks. Like you really get to think about portfolio construction and how you'll work with other parts of your own firm with things that you're developing. And that won't be for every asset, but it gives you this ability to sort of think much more broadly. So it's interesting, though, you kind of glossed over it. You started with a JV model with a large institutional capital provider. You then moved to capitalization deal by deal with non-institutional capital, high net worth, ultra high net worth, family office type money, I presume. And now the third evolution is going back to a fund model, but instead of a closed end fund, it's an evergreen or an open end fund. Did I get that right? That's accurate, correct. So before we talk about the open-end vehicle and some uh, some more of the advantages, why did you move from, you know, you, you mentioned technology as an enabler, and I'm glad that, you know, Juniper Square has been able to help you on your journey. But besides technology, why did you choose to go the non-institutional route to start with versus saying, hey, we have some institutional capital partners with Fortress and Garrison. We have relationships there. Maybe we'll go raise a fund from more traditional state pension funds and other traditional institutional capital providers. And the reason that I'm asking this question is, in my opinion, it's very timely because what we're seeing in the market or what I'm seeing in the market is a lot of those who went the other direction, who started institutional, they have also had success, but there, a lot of them are now trying to come back down to non-institutional and are really struggling because they don't appreciate or it's hard to appreciate or learn this really significant difference between what an institutional LP wants versus a non-institutional LP. So I'm hoping you can maybe talk to us a little bit about why you did it and then also what you've learned by working with the investor community that you've been able to amass over the last you know two decades. Yeah, so fair amount to unpack there. So I'll, I'll I'll try and break it down a little bit. You know, our private capital, you know, network was really people that we knew. So it's not like we were outwardly publicly marketing, which is a totally different animal. And and you really have to have a sophistication there to do that. There's different messaging. There are different things that an individual investor cares about versus an institution. And so we sort of just kept it as a very close knit and and most of our investors you know it's it's ultimately a trust level they they know who we are and that was very very meaningful i think our structure for the evergreen fund is really a hybrid of the two our first capital that we raised was from that you know private capital network that we've had for the last 8 years the institutions that we're talking to today are not really the big state pension funds. I think it's really important for firms that are raising capital, rather than just saying, hey, I just want the big pension fund because that's what everybody wants, to really identify for this particular strategy, for who we are as a firm culturally, what is the right capital for me? And we've kind of identified that sweet spot for us. You know, we chose one of the big reasons we chose the Evergreen Fund is that. For our single tenant strategy, if we had done a closed-end fund, at some point, based on lease expirations, we would hit an artificial brick wall of just time ending. And that's just not good for investors. With an evergreen fund, we're able to manage lease expirations 
in a much more holistic way. That's one of the huge reasons why we chose that structure, not because we just wanted a perpetual vehicle that was like, you know, the hot thing of the day. No, it really fit our strategy. You know, a, a closed end fund for something more value add and opportunistic that you don't have to worry about time as much, that probably shouldn't be in an open ended fund. So, our investor base that we're talking to today is really looking very specifically for groups that are not moving money and really have a niche strategy and, and a really different kind of culture. And so, you know, what that ends up looking like is, at least for today, corporate pension funds, healthcare type pension funds. So, smaller, more dynamic, research oriented that are not looking for the brand name, that are looking for people that they can build trust in and have a long term relationship with. And then it's the wealth advisors, same kind of thing. That's that's a slight deviation from kind of where we were, but there's a level of sophistication there. Family offices, RAAs, you know, those are the types of investors where we want to be able to have a conversation. We're very specifically not going to the broker dealer network where we're taking in one to two thousand dollar checks. You know, these need to be accredited investors. You know, we want to get to know them. We want to make sure they understand the strategy. We want to make sure that they understand, you know, how the fund works. And we're looking for long-term fits. We don't want people to think of this as a trading vehicle because it's not. I mean, it's a it's meant to be a long-term vehicle. So I think with all that being said, you know, it, it really comes down to what is the right fit of capital that matches what your strategy is and who you are as a firm, rather than just saying, hey, I just want the big money. I think there's a lot of wasted time spent. Look, we've had those meetings. I just think that that's not going to be productive today. Yeah, no, I appreciate the honesty and candor. And I think a lot of people approach it with, you know, looking through the lens of the shiny object that they see in front of them without fully understanding and oftentimes you can spend a lot of time and energy on something that may not be a good fit, as you said. One thing that I wanted to clarify is you've, you've said a few times, you know, we're not moving money. What, is, what does that mean? And how is that different than what other people are doing? Yeah, so there are, there are firms that, it, you know, I think once you get to a dollar threshold of $2 billion plus, right, it's really hard to focus on buying individual assets. You really have to be looking at investing in platforms, investing in, you know, much broader type situations rather than individual deal. And in some cases, like I think once you're at 5 billion, you need to be really looking at buying companies. And that's just further away from the real estate. I think you need to take macro level views versus really micro level views on on what your business plan is. I think there are firms that are very good at doing that. They're very good at moving money. They're very sophisticated, have had great track records. That's just not who we are. So we're not going to... I don't think you'll ever see us go to the market to say, oh, we're going to go raise... Our target is to raise a billion dollars. Five. We're not driven by that. We're driven by... We need enough capital to do the smart deals that we feel like are worth doing. Because turning it into 
a five billion dollar fund, it is that's just not what our goal is. That's not what our mission is. Makes sense. So you mentioned doing the smart deals. That's a perfect segue into our conversation about what are the types of deals that you're investing in. And let's talk specifically about out of the star vehicle, since that is your primary investment vehicle. You mentioned when you and the team reflected during COVID on what you're really good at. One of the things that you saw clearly was that your sweet spot is single tenant deals. At least that's what I think I heard you say. So maybe just let's break that down for our listeners who aren't familiar. Let's start with kind of 101. What is a single tenant deal? Who is a typical tenant in that single tenant deal? What do the economics look like? Are they triple net? You know, walk us through some of the basics that we should know about the type of real estate investing that you're doing. And then we can talk about some of the trends that you're seeing in the macro environment. Sure. So we really view single tenant as we don't really care about whether it's a gross lease structure or a net lease structure. That really doesn't matter to us. What we're looking for is what is the tenant story at the asset level. So a single tenant building is basically a building that's occupied by one single user. And the way we look at investing in the space, and I mentioned this before, that you know there are plenty of... It, it's typically viewed as a passive asset class where you can buy it, you can clip a coupon, you put it on the shelf, and then once the lease comes toward expiration, the tenant tells you whether they're staying or going. That's typically the way the single tenant market is viewed. And that's why, you know, a lot of firms can, you know, they can put out a lot of money if they sort of have that perspective. And, you know, they're they're trying to achieve, you know, more modest returns and they're going to have some wins, they're going to have some losses. Our view is let's apply a value-add approach to a passive asset class. And that's really where the arbitrage is. The The arbitrage is elbow grease, right? How do you roll up your sleeves and solve problems for a tenant and help them grow their business? So we are in the customer service business. There is not a landlord-tenant adversarial relationship. Literally from time zero, we're creating a relationship that at some point over time, we are trying to help them solve a problem. And at the end of the day, it's a simple equation. If they win, we win. And if we can help them build their business, you know, by by helping them accomplish things at their facility, um, and that could it, it could be the whole host of things. It could be amenities that they're looking for. It could be capital improvement replacements. It could be expansion facilities. And so if you're taking that approach, it's a much more active asset management approach. And I could walk you through an example of something that we recently bought or recently sold where that relationship can sometimes take years, two, three, four years. But they know that if there's an issue that they're grappling with, they have someone to call that's a senior person that can help them try and solve an issue. And, and help them really achieve an opportunity. A, a lot of the upsides that we end up generating are because there are positive situations at the asset level that they don't know how to execute. And, and a lot of times the language between someone that runs a facility and, and corporate, we end up being that bridge between financing something for them, you know, whether it's getting a longer term lease or amortizing into the rent and really executing what the people on the, on the ground want. Yeah. What is it? I mean, I, I, you mentioned you could give an example. I would love 
uh, if you could walk us through something just to kind of help bring this to light. So we one of our seed assets in the Star Fund is a good example. It is an asset in Huntsville, Alabama that's leased to a defense contractor right near the Redstone Arsenal. It's a very mission-critical site for them. They manufacture... So it's an R&D facility that they have software engineers, mechanical engineers, structural engineers. They have labs where they're testing things. And then they actually, at some point, will also have manufacturing. There's a little bit of manufacturing there today. But really, the story was they're developing laser... Helping with laser-guided missiles. So it's something that gets manufactured on a missile head. And when we were down there, we started to understand that they have a project that they're working on that they think will go into production in the next two to three years. And at that point, they're likely going to need an expansion. The building was already designed with knockout panels where they can do that. And so it it has a nine years of lease term. It has good cash flow. But there's also this expansion potential that we can help them effectuate. And so from day one, we're having active conversations with them about you know, what the design might be, what the cost might be. And then we sort of learned through multiple visits down there that corporate has now identified that market as a place that they want to expand even businesses outside of what they're doing there as their core business. Because the labor pool is so strong that they're able to hire high-quality, highly trained people, highly skilled people, highly educated people you know, to work in that facility. And it came with another 17 acres where not only could we do the expansion for the manufacturing, but we could actually build another two buildings for them. Now, that's probably a 5 to 10-year business plan to do all of that. But you need to be having those conversations from day one. And so... We're playing a long game, but you know, you've got to start from the moment you buy the building. And I just don't know that a lot of people have the patience and the wherewithal and the interest level to really be that active in what's a passive deal. Because right now we're just collecting our cash flow is fine, but we're trying to create more value from investors as quickly as we possibly can and take the risk of a lease expiration that is 10 years away off the table as soon as possible. That makes sense. And I think one blocker to that type of approach, as you alluded to earlier, is your capital structure, right? And you know your current capital structure with an open-end vehicle allows you to be long-term and also meet your investors where they are and give them what they need. I think that's right. And it's also skill set. I think that there's... a if you can apply an active asset management skill set, and you need to have the experience level to do that. You know, we work with our development team when we're doing expansion. So sometimes there are things that if you don't have that group internally, if we didn't have a development group internally, we're probably not buying that deal. I mean, it's it's that's just not something I think as a as a passive investor without development expertise that would be obligated to go build an expansion for a tenant that we would we would want to take on if we did not have that expertise in-house. So you mentioned earlier that you don't care about the lease structure. How about the type of tenant? Because I know that you talked about you do government and government adjacent. Is that a specific niche or will you deviate from 
kind of government adjacent to grocery anchored or kind of where do you draw your line? Yeah. So for, for us, for this strategy, it's research and development, manufacturing, can be, you know, distribution, can be office, and it can have a federal component. The federal component will most likely come from, you know, just a select few assets that we buy from our development pipeline. There will likely be some deals that we that we put into the fund that come from our development in in the logistics space as well. So there's synergies from within the firm. But no, we're not doing retail. We're not doing hotel. We're kind of sticking to our our knitting and kind of what we know best. And so it, you know, it, it's somewhat product type specific. I mean, there could be offshoots of doing similar things like this down the road with other verticals. But right now, this is this is kind of the the focus on those asset classes. So, with the benefit of being a vertically integrated firm and having a really specific sector. An asset class focus when you and you know let's go back to your days you know where you started your career doing research and I know that you're kind of a very fundamental based investment shop. Are you looking at kind of how do you think about the credit of the tenant? Are you looking at the individual company and then underwriting that once the opportunity comes to you? Or are you saying, hey, our thesis is that X type of tenant and Y type of market is going to outperform, and you go try to find an asset that matches your investment thesis? What's the general approach? So I, I think it's both. You know, there's there's a reactive and proactive kind of approach here. And so, you know, we're not afraid to look at private credits. We have the, the ability to underwrite credits internally. So that's really not an issue. And we really are looking for that. So doing sale leasebacks is something that we think we will be doing. I mean, typically those companies are using as a way to, you know, raise capital that they can then deploy within their companies. And they typically need other things done at the asset. So having that development component internally, we we basically go to them with like, hey, we're not just, you know, solving your your financial needs, but we actually have these capabilities internally and they become, you know, a client as well. So, you know, it, it really can go all all across the board there. So we're we're not afraid of different credits, but you know, from a proactive standpoint, you know, there are certain industries that we'll be leery of, and then there are other industries that you know we'll we'll try and pursue. But at the end of the day, every single one of our deals, it has to come down to the mission at the asset itself. We have to really understand how mission critical it is for them to be in this building from a location standpoint, what's in the building, how much infrastructure they have, how difficult it would be to move. And those really help us build that conviction of why they're going to stay and what we can possibly do to help enhance their operations at the asset. So, you know, we need to see activity in the building, like just having a lease term that has a long-term lease where there's no activity in the building, that's probably not going to cut it. So we're we're really looking for that mission critical reason of why they need to be there. And, and sometimes it's location, sometimes it's assets, sometimes it's labor pool. It could be a whole host of things. Hmm. Fascinating. So let's let's switch over to talk about macroeconomics for a moment. We know that, you know, this is recorded in April of 2023. 
and the Fed's just increased interest rates two times. We know that we're coming out of a global pandemic where the office market has been hit extremely hard. We've had a recent you know, run on the banks with Silicon Valley Bank failing. So we're clearly living in you know, unprecedented times. We don't need to get too doom and gloom. What is your kind of outlook and what are the things that you're trying to keep your finger on the pulse of related to the macroeconomic environment and how that impacts you know, the corporates that you're serving as a landlord and asset manager? So I would say for the last five months, there's been a lot of noise. And, and I have been objectively optimistic that the, the Fed's raising rates, there's inflation. But there's always been this underpinning of this battle of the... There are, there are fundamental growth opportunities in the US economy whether we like it or not. And they're, and they're great opportunities. And they're going to be longer term. They're 50-year type investments that both foreign companies are making in the US and US companies are making. And long term, that will be unbelievably beneficial. There is a true shift in the global economy toward regionalization. And the US, despite itself, will benefit from that. Uh, which is fantastic from a trade standpoint, from a manufacturing standpoint. I mean, we could actually be a net exporter of goods in the next five to 10 years. That really doesn't get a lot of news. It doesn't really get a lot of attention. But when you have that growth that is happening in the economy and you have inflation that's driven from that, but also exogenous events, whether it's you know uh, a war in Ukraine, or it's the supply chain issues that happened during the pandemic. I mean, they really exacerbate those things. And, and you're seeing a lot of this conflict and consternation that's candidly creating constipation, right? I mean, that's where we're at. I would say the last two weeks is a very, very different tone than, than previous. The bank issues are making a lot of people nervous I think the good thing for real estate is that it's not real estate driven and it's going to impact everybody. I was just on an internal phone call. We have a, a, a line of credit that we that we use for things. And you know, that's 8%, right? We don't use it a lot, but think about just a generic company that needs to use that to fund operations on a 30-day paid basis. I mean, that is going to impact a ton of companies. And we just haven't even seen that actually hit the numbers yet, but it's coming. On top of that, you know, when you look at unemployment, you know, unemployment's still in the mid threes. I mean, that's a very, very low number. And on top of all of that, you have a labor pool that during COVID, you know, you had all the all the people from the GFC that were about to retire, then all of a sudden couldn't. Then they had to work for another 10 years. Then COVID hits. Their IRAs are actually looking pretty good. They're 10 years older now. They wanted to retire 10 years prior. They're basically saying, I'm out. That is tens of millions of people that have literally left the workforce. So there's, in addition to Fed policy of increasing rates, you have other issues that are not in control by the Fed that have to be focused on. And, you know, labor is a is a real issue where we need to figure out how to either increase productivity, 
or just increase the labor pool's size. We've had declining demographics. And so that, that is an issue that's really out there that the Fed doesn't really have tools to deal with. And, and that's a much larger conversation. And I think that's where we're kind of at right now. But we're seeing in the last two weeks things that definitely give me a little bit more concern. Like we're trying to put a swap on a deal right now. Very, very healthy bank. In fact, they just bought the assets from a failed bank. And they're being told that you know there's counterparty risk on the other side to institute a swap. I mean, you didn't hear that for the last you know 13 years. But that's a conversation that is real. We've been having conversations on development deals with institutions that you know were super, super interested in some of our niche strategies. And now they're backing away. I mean, they're just they're just taking a pause. There's there's a lot more going on. And I think the the bank failure issue really took a lot of people by surprise. That was an un- unintended consequence. I think if you were to ask the Fed if that's what they expected to happen by raising rates, they would say no. So it sounds like, well, rather than me saying what it sounds like, so what is your forecast, if you will, for what the choppy waters look like for the next, you know, is it choppy waters for the next six, 12 months? And, you know, more specifically, how is that translating into, you know, what are you seeing, I should say, from an investor sentiment? You know, are you still able to raise money for your different strategies? What's happening from the investor perspective, given these choppy waters that we're in? So I think the choppy waters, it's probably longer now than I would have said a couple of weeks ago. I think that's going to be six to nine months. I think on our equity raising, I still feel very confident about that. And, and that sort of ties into the opportunities that we're seeing. We are seeing sale leaseback opportunities. We are seeing sellers that are now starting to get a little bit more motivated to sell. They're having different kind of pressures, whether it's debt maturities or investor, you know, pressure to sell assets. I don't think those opportunities are going to last more than 18 months. And what we're telling investors is, you know, we're going to be able to achieve outsized returns if we're going to be able to buy assets in the next, you know, between now and the next 18 months. They're not going we're not going to be able to achieve those returns after that, I don't think. There's there's enough capital that's been raised that is waiting to get back into the market once things unfreeze a little bit. The, the freezing right now is, is really in the banking system. You're seeing you know, deals trade that are you know, using no leverage because using leverage with, with negative leverage makes no sense. And so you're, you're seeing some of that today as well. So I think six months, it's, it's going to be choppy. I think... If you can figure out a way to, you know, raise capital and get transactions done, I think you're going to be pretty happy with what you bought. And so it's going to be an interesting, you know, next set of months. And, you know, my my crystal ball, you know, I, I look at the forward curve pretty much every day. And this is such a blatant, you know, the market doesn't believe what the Fed is saying than I think I've seen in my entire career. I mean, the, the, the SOFR forward curve right now shows that it's going to start going down in June and a really steep drop at that. 
while Powell is still saying, I'm going to raise rates again, and I'm going to hold them higher for longer. And I think they're going to have to start looking at where are things breaking in the system, you know, and and are we doing things that are breaking the wrong things that we intended to in the system? And the speed at which that's happening is not a quarter look back. I mean, it's real time. And the data that they need to get needs to be real time to kind of figure that out. Because I would say most people, you know, would would argue today, yeah, we are already in a recession today. I don't need to wait for the data. And you know that's entirely possible but cuz we don't have the numbers yet but when you are talking to people and you're assessing sentiment and stress and anxiety it's there at the same time there is opportunity yeah i think very well said and corroborates what we heard from a guest that i had on the show a few weeks ago who made the exact same point, which is a lot of the data that the Fed's using is lagging. In particular, if you look at the CPI and you look at shelter, which is a significant part of that, you know, uh, Jason Kern from Cortland Investment Management estimated that that could be lagging as much as four quarters, right? And that's a lot of the data that the Fed is using to set policy. So clearly there's this gap between the availability of data and the ability to act quickly on recent or current data versus historical data that may now be out of date. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I it, it's the the Fed keeps communicating that they they are not going to be in a position where, you know, they they get inflation under control and then ease off the gas and then it gets out of control again, but you know, they're going to really have to balance overshooting and and the unintended consequences of breaking things that they did not intend on breaking that's going to permeate well beyond real estate. I mean, it's going to impact, you know, every company when when borrowing, short-term borrowing costs go up so dramatically. Having said that, like we are taking advantage of what the curve is doing. We're putting hedges in place just to take risk off the table on swaps that don't even expire for another year. And so there there are things that you can be doing to just take risk off the table given where you know the forward curve is today. So those are truly just unique anomaly opportunities in the market that I think everyone should be paying attention to. I think we could go on for a long time talking about you know the Fed and the policy and what the market's doing. But suffice to say, I think your insights are very astute and, and relevant from the perspective of where you invest in the types of tenants that you work with. We have time for one kind of last section and I think of all my guests, you're uniquely positioned to comment on this. And perhaps it's more of a, what advice would you give or what have you learned? But, you know, FD Stonewater in particular, as we discussed earlier, started your journey as, you know, a, as a firm with JV Institutional, JV Capital, you moved to non-institutional deal by deal capital. And now you have, you know, in, in, in a deal by deal structure, I think there's a closed end fund in there. And now you have an open end fund. Having just gone through the process of launching your first open-end or evergreen vehicle, and what lessons have you learned or what has struck you as different, whether that's a good different or a bad different, that might be useful for others to hear? Because I know you just went through this experience for the first time. Yes. I would say that the one huge piece of advice that I would give anybody is to really plan it out. You know, Plan out what your milestones are. Plan out the things that you need to do, the people that you need to hire, the people you need to interview, 
Are you properly staffed? Do you have the right infrastructure? And, and really take an inward look at, are we actually ready? Are we actually ready to do this before you go spend the money? And that's exactly what we did. I mean, we, we literally wrote a multi-page outline and then we converted that into things that we needed to accomplish. You need to be challenging yourself every single time. Is this the right move? You can't be, you know, I created a checklist. I need to go through the checklist. You need to reevaluate it all the time. I strongly encourage anyone who's doing it to interview multiple firms for whatever vending opportunity or outside services that you need. You are going to learn things from every single group that you interview. And you really need to... You're going to be living with these people. Forget about the dollars that you're going to be spending. You need advice from them. You need to rely on them. There has to be a rapport there that when there is an issue, you can call them with confidence and you're going to get an answer with conviction. We started hiring a law firm. And very early on, we started to feel like, hey, there's doesn't feel like there's a lot of conviction in the answers. And we made a very early pivot. And that's that's another example of you really have to make a determination wherever you are in the process of, is this the right thing? And you can always pull back from actually launching. Is it the right time? Did I hit the right milestones? Where's the market today to do that? And It's difficult to be self-reflective while you have a big goal that you're trying to achieve. And you just have to be reevaluating that all the time. And that's not an easy thing to do. I think uh, enough said. That's 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 a great perspective. And I think having some humility and understanding that, you know, you can always hit pause. You can always do something different. You can always double down and move faster is a, is a great perspective to share. So Jeff, one of the things that I wanted to make sure that we talk about is technology. You and I got to know each other probably eight or nine years ago, as you mentioned before. And one of the things that stood out to me about FD Stonewater and your approach is how forward your thinking is vis-a-vis not only adopting technology, but making sure that you utilize technology in everything you do. Can you talk to us a little bit about why that's important to you and kind of how you've embraced technology, whether you want to call it prop tech or just broadly real estate in your business? Yeah. So I've always had a passion for technology. Even when I started at Eastill, when I got to Eastill, they didn't even have a modem to connect to the internet. So I know that dates me a little bit. But, you know, we were part of that wave of, you know, where technology was going. And it was a really, really exciting time. And I learned a lot through that and got to work with some firms that are staples in in prop tech today, right? Real Capital Analytics and, and Real Capital Markets. And those were super exciting times. But we've always approached it for, we are trying to look for a solution to a problem. We're looking for better transparency. We're looking for efficiency. And what could we do from a technology standpoint to, to make our employees have higher job satisfaction, right? So we're constantly looking for solutions that help them do their jobs better. And sometimes those solutions work, sometimes they don't. And sometimes adoption, you know, is a little bit of a challenge. But that's generally our perspective there. And 
you know, it's it's really wild. Like we invested and adopted a technology called Profia that does lease abstracting and it's real time. And there's there's data and dashboards where you can look at things on an individual asset basis all the way through your whole portfolio and get notifications when things are happening. Those used to be static documents that never got updated properly and extracting economic data out of legal data. And now that piece of technology is getting you know, the most amount of eyes, both internally and externally. We share that information with people outside the firm that need access to it. And so things like that really help productivity. And that's ultimately what we're looking for is if you can increase productivity, increase transparency and efficiency, we're always looking for technology solutions there. I mean, we demo probably you know, five softwares a month. Through your introduction, we actually invested in a prop tech fund, Canberra Creek. We want to be hearing, we want to be testing, we want to be constantly figuring out how we could make the experience better for our employees, our investors, anyone who's interacting with us. Where do you think technology is going in terms of its utilization in real estate? Because you've always been ahead of the curve, but it's not uncommon to hear people talk about, you know, technology not being ready or this is a human business. And I think it's interesting what you said is you framed it as how do you drive a better employee experience? But, you know, what do you think the next chapter is or, you know, what would you like to see be solved through the utilization of technology going forward? So this week, Owen Burke and I, who, you know, is uh, he and I kind of co-lead the technology push. We spoke to a company this week that is not in real estate prop tech. They are doing data extraction with, with AI. And AI has sort of been this mysterious you know, word to me. But he showed us what they're doing using different platforms like, like OpenAI and other really robust infrastructures. And it was amazing how rather than just pure data extraction, you can actually set up a bunch of questions and it'll go through volumes of data and give you the answer. So chat GPT is just a small part of that. But imagine taking volumes of data and and having the machine actually learn what's duplicative and eliminate it. What and, and actually resolve conflicts that sometimes humans might not even be able to do. That's a part of where we're going and the applications of that, that I don't really have a crystal ball on how it's going to get applied. Do I think that this is the moment in time where you're not going to need humans? Absolutely not. But it's going to shift from data extraction and what data scientists are doing to data analysis. So now that I have all the data and I've extracted it, how do I go through it and give people a sense of what it means? And I think it's a really exciting time. I mean, obviously there have been tons of investments in there. There are going to be very quick applications to real estate that are going to happen. I already know some real estate, you know, prop tech companies that are engaging with people who are who are doing that kind of stuff on the on the AI side. So it's a really exciting time, and like you know, the wave is starting to come. You just have no idea where it's going to go. Yeah, the CFO of one of the largest real estate private equity firms in the world recently 
told me when we were talking, I'm data rich and information poor. And I think that sums up what you said, which is the data is now there. We've spent a lot of time getting it structured, but how do we use it? How do we use it to make better investment decisions? Before I get off this topic, you know, one of the things that I've observed through my conversations is that there's actually an inverse correlation between those who talk about you know, and market from a headline perspective, you know, we use data, we use machine learning and AI and their actual ability to utilize that data. FD Stonewater, in my opinion, is different in the sense that you talk about it, but only in the way that it's constructive to either recruiting people or educating your investors. But let us under the hood, what does your stack look like? And that can include, you know, let's talk about your star vehicle, which is your new, you know, the new open end vehicle that you have. What does that framework look like from both the technology and services perspective? Because there's a lot that goes into it. And sometimes it's technology plus services versus just only technology or technology plus people, as you said, because people remain important to our business. Yeah, 100 percent. You know, I could use one huge example, which, you know, is a, a service that Juniper is providing us on the fund admin side. There's a lot of complexity to, to running an open-end fund. We have people coming in to the fund at different time intervals. NAVs get calculated every quarter by an outside third party. And the ability for Juniper to, to provide those fund admin services where there's, you know, a really robust trustworthiness of of how to track that for each individual investor. I don't think we we would have been able to execute on that fund if it weren't for that. And that's a really critical piece of the technology base and infrastructure that we use. And you know, it our 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 whole ethos really is and and you and you said it correctly, it's not just technology, it's technology and services. In my opinion, you really can't just do one without the other. It has to be both. Because every piece of technology, we're trying to make that tech better. So we are constantly giving feedback and and trying to make the product better to, to continue to make better solutions, not just for us, but it's better for the industry itself to have that. So like we we use third party accounting, we actually use two different firms now, and we've outsourced that and that's given us a ton of leverage. And so we're keeping, you know, the real thought components of what we need in house to do that. And so there's a in in our pitch deck for the for the fund, we actually have a whole page that lays out the architecture, our development team has adopted a ton of architect a ton of technology. You know, just from like a draw perspective of keeping track of the draws, reconciling the draws, making sure that the development, it fits into the development timeline and giving transparency to to lenders with that information is, you know, it just takes the burden off of us. There's, there's a lot of stuff we're testing right now that is in like the preliminary design phase that can start filling in pockets we've been hoping for. As you know, I, I talk about trying to achieve the holy grail all the time where I can have one dashboard where my financials are there, my leases are there, my stacking plan is there, my debt information is there. And right now, you know, that is not happening. I wish it were. We're using different technology for all those things. You know, it, it'd be exciting if we were at that point. And, and maybe that's where you know, there's interfaces that can talk to each other to, to do that. But 
I still feel like real estate's a little bit further behind than it needs to be. You have this massive wave of, of technological innovation that really helps kickstart stuff. But there's got to be another wave that takes it to that next level. Yeah. Well, I think what's most important is that, you know, it's people like you and Owen on your team or on the team and others at the firm who are helping to drive the industry forward. Because ultimately, what a lot of people don't realize is that those of us who are in technology or, you know, professional services don't sit there and in a dark room and think up what we think is a great idea. We're really needing to listen to the market and react. And, you know, sometimes we get there on the first try. Sometimes it takes us a few, but ultimately it's this understanding that it's a partnership. There is no magical wand that you can wave and poof, the world is perfect. So I appreciate your leadership with us and, and also other firms and helping to drive the industry forward. So thank you. Before we wrap up today, wanted to get your kind of prediction, if you will, for, you know, we've talked a lot about where the economy is going, but as you think about the rest of 2023, any predictions that you're willing to share in terms of what we might see from a capital markets perspective, in addition to what you've already shared with us? I mean, from a capital markets perspective, I, I do think that there's there's going to need to be movement so that transactions can happen. And, and I don't think the the government wants to be in a situation where you're you're just having a completely frozen capital markets. And so I think that that will be beneficial to everybody. We don't want to get back into a free money situation. I've been asking people most, most recently, what do you think a normalized unemployment number is? And what do you think a base rate should be for short-term borrowing? And I sort of have my numbers and you know they're not what they've been for the last 10 years. But you should be able to continue to transact you know, even at that level. And so I, I, I hope we do some unfreezing here of liquidity because I think that's really important and remove fear out of the system. You know, because the last two weeks, I think people really started to, to reflect a little bit because there are still a lot of positive engines in the US economy that need to continue to go forward. So with that, if people want to reach out to you or they want to learn more about the work that FD Stonewater is doing, what's the best way for them to find you and or learn more about FD Stonewater? Yeah, so they can go to our website, www.fdstonewater.com, and they could always reach out to me directly at jtaporek at fdstonewater.com. And I'm also on LinkedIn and happy to, to chat about our firm, chat about life and all the, all the lessons we've learned along the way. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. And as always, thanks for sharing your insights. And until next time, thank you. Yeah, thanks, Brandon. This was fun. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Distribution by Juniper Square. If you liked today's podcast, please share it with a colleague or a friend. And don't forget to subscribe and rate The Distribution on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can connect with me on LinkedIn by going to www.linkedin.com forward slash IN forward slash B Sedloff. Or you can find me on Twitter at B Sedloff. You can also find a video recording of this conversation on demand at junipersquare.com forward slash the dash distribution. Until next time. Thank you.